Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Retail Rundown. I'm your host, Julia Raymond Hare. And if you've tuned in before, welcome back. And if you are new, this is a show where we cover hot topics from news and trends happening in the best industry retail. You can get in touch with us on Twitter at Rethink underscore Retail, on LinkedIn, and many more. And you can find those links to our social handles on the bottom of our website homepage at Rethink.Industries, or if it's easier to remember, RethinkRetail.org. If you're keeping up with the buzz and now on Clubhouse, it would be swell to connect with you on there. My handle is at Julia R. Hare. That's R like retail and hair like the rabbit. On most Mondays at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, you can join us for a live after-party discussion of the new rundown episode in our club. The club is Rethink Retail. Clubhouse sessions depend on guest and host availability, and we will not be having a room on May 3rd, but we will keep you posted on these rooms via our social channels, so please give us a follow to stay in the loop. Let's dive in. Today, you'll be hearing from Chris Breen, head of partnerships at Public Goods, which is a membership-based D2C retailer. They offer home goods and healthy everyday essentials straight to your door. And you may have come across Public Goods products at some of my favorite stores, including West Elm and Neighborhood Goods or other retail stores. But they also service the B2B space, specifically hospitality with boutique clients such as the Coconut Waikiki Hotel. Our guest Chris currently leads its B2B team where he's focusing on making simple, sustainable, and design-forward products accessible in the retail and hospitality industry. Thank you for joining us today, Chris. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Happy to have you on the show. And and just a little context for our listeners, Chris is joining right now from California, but he is usually in New York. And Chris, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Tell us a little bit about public goods and how it's a different model than traditional retail. Sure. Yeah. I guess to take a step back, I've been doing this for about two years now. We've been very fortunate at Public Goods to see quite a bit of growth within that two-year span. The company originally, if you're going back to the founding story, founded by Morgan Hirsch and and Michael Furchak, Kickstarter-based founding story there, direct-to-consumer company and membership-based, the business model was really kind of revolving around a few principles and values. The product line being simplicity, design-centric, sustainable, and healthy products for the consumer, and really the end goal to provide more accessibility and affordability. So a membership-based company in the realm that you pay a membership and get access to a breadth of products across category at lower prices. So an interesting business model, and COVID has actually really helped the business you know, in the past year. So we've seen quite a bit of growth, and, and it's been an exciting time, I'd say, within the past six months to a year in terms of growth. Sure. So you're saying it actually maybe accelerated the growth. Yeah, without question. I remember a little bit over a year ago when COVID first hit, it was an interesting time for the business. The direct-to-consumer side of the business we saw grow about five times. And it was kind of the classic startup moment where we found ourselves a bit understaffed and a little bit low on resources to kind of deal with that. But since then, you know, a lot of great things have happened in terms of investment and I will say, though, from the B2B end, my side of the business and our team working with hospitality and retailers, that was a difficult time for us. As you can imagine, you know, brick and mortar retail took a large hit during COVID and the hospitality as well as travel shut down. So it was a bit of a trade-off, but we've actually seen as of right now, things start to pick up back on the B2B front as the direct consumer business continues to scale as well. Sure. So is it fair to say that for a while you were maybe hopping in helping with some of the D2C growth that you guys saw while hospitality was still a bit behind? It's a classic kind of startup where we all are really supporting each other, the departments, and there's really open communication 
the team works really well together. And I will say I have to pay credit where it's due to Morgan. The company culture has really been kind of naturally formed, very smart, talented, curious employees. And we all kind of have supported each other in growth and, and through those kind of awkward moments as a startup kind of scales. So it's been exciting, challenging, but definitely more exciting. Yeah, that sounds like a fun time. I mean, it's always a bit of a rush, right? When you're trying to figure out how you can service all of the new customers that come in, but it's a good problem to have. And you mentioned Kickstarter because I wanted to dive into that just a little bit. It's interesting. I haven't had many guests on the show who are working with a company that was founded in that way. Can you tell us a little bit about that story? Yeah. When I first started about two years ago, the company was initially funded by Kickstarter and it was where we were offering our membership. So it really, I think, formed the value proposition of the company and and where we started pitching the idea of a membership model for lower prices, cutting out the middleman, et cetera. I don't want to speak on behalf of Morgan and Michael who were behind that, but from my perspective, and actually when I was joining, I think it was a good test of, you know, if customers were receptive to that type of model and finding out if people would buy into it. And I'd say that it was very successful. The early days were very interesting. We found that customers were kind of open to the model. They, they resonated with the brand. I think the value proposition was there as well as kind of the brand uh, around simplicity, again, design-centric sustainable goods was something that customers were really yearning for in the marketplace that wasn't there currently. So it all kind of uh, aligned. And I think it's been an interesting journey, but definitely a founding story that I think is unique to public goods. Absolutely. And your website is just beautiful. If you haven't seen it and you're listening to this, go take a look at publicgoods.com. The products are super curated, clean, modern, beautiful. And I know you use the word simplicity a few times already in our conversation. And what do you really mean by that? What is simplicity in retail? Yeah, that's a good question. I think simplicity in something we're trying to do, you know, goes beyond the products themselves. So if you ever have a chance to look at publicgoods.com, you'll see the product designs are very simple. Personal care being our first category, it was really the shampoo, conditioner, body wash, et cetera, that really helped form our kind of general brand values. Again, I have to pay credit to Morgan on, on his vision here. I think simplicity, the goal of it was to stay consistent in the product line and deliver, you know, more value, more products with that kind of simple design but then reach further beyond just the products themselves and deliver simplicity in the shopping experience. So how customers operate on the site, the user experience, and the the digital product. So the customer journey and, and the whole kind of ecosystem around the site, we try and think of through how we can make things more simple for the customer. And that's something I really challenge myself on the B2B front, as we just actually launched our, our new B2B store last week. How can we make wholesale shopping more simple? Because wholesale shopping historically has been something that's usually robust, clunky, mm-hmm. you hop on the phone, negotiation, et cetera. It's kind of this thing that's inconsistent. And, and now we're trying to really kind of revolutionize wholesale shopping and make that more, uh, you know, more fun, even, <laughs> you know, exactly more fun. Yeah, more beautiful. Well, congratulations on launching that. That must have been a huge relief and a exciting moment to get that up and running. Yeah, I appreciate it. It was a, a big lift. And there's still a long way to go in terms of improving the site, etc. But I think the vision is there. And really excited to see what the future holds for the B2B site. And in the B2B side of things, are you laser focused right now on beauty? Or do you have plans to expand out of that? Or is that really where it makes most sense for you guys? B2B right now and, and our wholesale partners, it's still kind of revolving mostly around personal care in terms of category. 
again, the goal is to really deliver easy experience for wholesale buyers and, and connect with them directly. But we're still seeing most purchasing behavior being in personal care. What I will say is kind of as product line expands and we have household and grocery and new categories on the way, every new SKU has a new potential opportunity, whether it be through a new retailer, you know, on shelf somewhere, et cetera. Uh, you never really know what the hero product is going to be. So having new products kind of uh, on the pipeline and in product development to me is exciting because it could open more doors than we currently have. And the goal of the company is to continue expanding into new categories and, and add more SKUs to the business. So from my perspective, it's going to open a lot of doors and, and just provide us more wholesale opportunities. Sure. That makes a lot of sense. And then also, I, I see that you work with a handful of partners. Neighborhood Goods is one of them. We've talked about them quite a bit on the show because they made a big splash when they you know first launched and just how their business model is so unique. What does that look like when you work with someone like Neighborhood Goods? Yeah, I really like working with them. I think they're the perfect example of the type of retail, especially brick and mortar and other e-commerce stores, if we're going to sell on them, the type of brand fit we're looking for. The reason why I say that is because they really care about merchandising. And for us, you know, having a narrative-driven storytelling approach to how we sell is so important. As a brand, you know, going back to simplicity, it'd be very difficult for us to stand out uh, on shelf next to other items because the products really enhance themselves when they're standing next to other public goods products. So what Neighborhood Goods has done for us is really brought us a, a merchandising experience that, you know, aligns all the SKUs together on shelf. They give us kind of an end cap opportunity there's, you know, storytelling experiences and email and on their site. And they're really the perfect partner for us in that regard. Very cool. I definitely like that you mentioned about, you know, the narrative focused immersive experiences that can be offered. I know that we had chatted a little bit about how that's important and the fewer SKUs and bigger investment in marketing is important. Are you guys working with influencers or how would you say you typically approach your marketing either from B2C or B2B side? Yeah, we have an affiliate team that works with influencers. So that's kind of working well. And that's the direct consumer marketing side of the business. Hopefully, you know, down the road as we scale, B2B marketing will become more vital growing inbound uh, leads to our new site and really kind of driving traffic there as kind of a B2B e-commerce model versus dealing with sellers and, and negotiating, et cetera. So having self-serving traffic. So really excited about that. I do think, you know, going back to the fewer SKUs you mentioned at retail, it would be virtually impossible for us to, you know, launch with a retailer, say neighborhood goods with our entire product line. We're 300 SKUs plus right now and growing. So for those type of relationships, we try and focus on best sellers and really work with the category buyer about you know what's a good fit, what resonates with their customer, what are they looking for on shelf, and really use the value proposition of your finding a direct consumer business outside of their membership, maybe in brick and mortar in New York City or, or online, and getting to find one of their best products there. So for us, it's working well, and, and we'll probably continue to just do limited SKUs, you know, tell the story, introduce them to the public goods brand, and use that as a funnel either for the membership side of the business or to help the retailer themselves in improving their brand as a retailer. And the membership side of the business, is that only on the D2C side, or is that also applied to B2B? Correct. Yeah, it's only on the D2C side. So B2B customers who buy from us on wholesale will come to us for case packs, but do not have to opt into a membership. Let's dive into marketplaces. This is one of my favorite topics just because there's so much to know about it. You know, you see frenemies basically working together nowadays in retail. It's always happened, but I think it's happening at scale now with marketplaces. 
How would you say Public Goods maintains its brand image when selling on marketplaces? And what does that look like? Yeah, it's an interesting topic because I think there's pros and cons there. You know, obviously, on a marketplace, you're sharing the space. You know, it's not your own branded opportunity. So I'd say that's, you know, one of the cons. But, you know, diving into the pros, you do get to kind of unlock your brand to a whole pool of leads and customers that you normally would not have access to, similar to how a distributor works and they have their relationships. So marketplaces can really help kind of introduce the brand to new opportunities, but, you know, at the result that you're sharing the space. So I think really finding a brand fit in marketplaces is important. We have tried testing on FAIR, which is a wholesale marketplace, and they've done a really good job at introducing us to small boutique retailers that are actually a really great brand fit. And they give us the opportunity to you know, kind of vet them and decide if they're good for the public goods brand so we can kind of control the image. So FAIR you know, is, a, is a big wholesale marketplace. But then other retailers' websites, we also sell on there as well, you know, given that it's a brand fit. So... Indigo and Canada would be a good example of that. West Elm, Vera Shop are examples of, of places you can probably find some public goods bestsellers. I love West Elm. That's cool. I'll have to look out next time I'm there. Um, and when you were testing on FAIR, that experience went well. It sounds like you were able to meet some new customers that way on the B2B side. Did they come to you? Like, was it something where they discovered you or how did that work? I can't quite remember if it was, you know, we went to them or maybe there was an inbound email, but I think there was alignment on kind of what we were looking to achieve through them. And we decided to test it. You know, we did a line of some of our best selling products and it did exactly what we needed it to do. You know, marketplaces are an upfront investment in time. You get your SKUs uploaded on the website, you upload the photos, you have to write the product descriptions, and you hope that there's some return on that kind of effort. Luckily with FAIR, they have an amazing network of small businesses that they were able to put us in touch with and be kind of the driver of the sale. That normally for, say, a salesperson would not really be able to have access to. Uh, there's a whole bunch of lead generation that has to happen, et cetera. So they really simplified that process and got us into boutique retailers for public goods makes sense. So I will say it was a successful launch and we'll probably continue uh, working with them in the future. Definitely. And I want to mention, you know, it's crazy how much you guys are actually living the sustainability portion of your brand because. Some people claim to be sustainable and they're not. Some people greenwash, et cetera. But you guys, I mean, I went to your LinkedIn page before hopping on the podcast and I know it said you plant a tree for every order. That's right. Yeah. Sustainability is something where it's an active goal we're trying to reach. It's something I think every company in consumer space is is targeting. And and there's obviously a lot of stories to tell there around sustainability. and, And there's a lot of question marks as well around, you know, what's truly sustainable and what's not. So it's a bit of a moving target and something we're trying to do, but it's an active thing where you can always do better. There's always improvement. These partnerships like One Tree Planted, for example, have been great for the brand and, and, and the customers resonate with it and it just makes sense. You know, It's a wonderful initiative. So we're happy to do it and continue to kind of work with initiatives in that space as well. It is, it is a wonderful initiative. And this is kind of a niche question, but I notice, you know, some of the products you offer to the hospitality space are not the single use, you know, shampoo, conditioner, body wash. They are the larger bottles that the hotel refills. I mean, it blows my mind that more hotels don't use that kind of product and they use the single use. Do you know why that is? 
you know, I can't say exactly why hotels choose to use the single use items. If I were to guess, I'd say it's mostly around costs. Most single use items from some of the big hospitality distributors are extremely cheap and affordable. They also make sense from an operational standpoint for the hotel. They're just easy. It's an easy turnover room by room. Somebody leaves, you throw out the stuff, et cetera. You put new stuff in there. Is it a good solution? No. And I think that's kind of what's happening now in the hospitality space is what we're seeing. Also, to take a step back, about, I'd say, a year ago, I believe California put a ban on single-use plastics effective in 2023. So what's happening now is we're seeing hospitality companies and hotels start to take notice of of this initiative and and change early, which is really great. So we're trying to basically catch the wave there. And and what we're doing is we're launching gallon refills in, in the coming months. We have our 12-ounce bottles that are made from sugarcane that will be refillable. And actually, about a year ago now, I designed a stainless steel wall mount for the properties that are custom-fitted to our bottles so that it's a also a beautiful customer experience. Oh, wow. That's your design. I did it about a year ago. It's an interesting one because it, it is custom to the bottles. So I'm very happy with the way that it came out. I think it looks great. So basically, we're going to continue to sell the wall mounts. Something that's interesting that's happening is there also is a need for tamper-proof options in, in the space, you know, due to COVID and safety concerns. Every property kind of has their own decision-making around whether or not they want to use a tamper-proof option or a non-tamper-proof option. It really depends on usually the size of the hotel or the hospitality group, whether it's boutique or an Airbnb example. They would normally would go for a non-tamper-proof option. Usually those are more sleek and beautiful and the tamper-proofs can be a little bit more clunky and robust. So the next challenge, I think, is for people to create opportunities for big hospitality groups that are also beautiful and design-centric. It's something we would like to get ahead of as well. Those are good points. And I hope that the hospitality industry does adapt. I think they've done a good job with putting communications out to people who are visiting the hotel where it says, hey, if you want to hang up your towel instead of having it washed every day, you save this much water. And I think the same kind of communications could be applied to public goods products where it's how many plastic bottles you're saving by not having them and using the larger ones. Yeah, and I think historically... Single-use products were used. I think the bulk formats were probably viewed as a less kind of sleek and, and less beautiful option. So if you had those, maybe they thought it degraded the brand of the hotel and took it down a notch. And I think that's really changing. We're seeing a lot of hotels that are beautiful, you know, high-rated, gorgeous boutique hotels that are adopting these bulk formats or at least attempting to weigh out the cost effectiveness of, of one option versus the other. And I think it's going to continue happening. So you know, we're going to. We continue pitching hospitality clients in that space and, and hopefully trying to win them over. But I'm just excited to see how that space evolves because obviously it's a great initiative. It's super important. Single use is, is massively wasteful in hospitality. So excited for the next few years and seeing how that space evolves. I am too. And sort of to extend this topic just a little bit, I saw something the other day that said a lot of Gen Z consumers are more focused on the idea of a capsule wardrobe so that they have key pieces and they're not as interested in fast fashion because of the implications to the environment, of course. So consumers are spending on things that are maybe a little bit more expensive, but more curated. And can you share any predictions on consumer trends that you guys are seeing? Yeah, I think that's a good point. I'd agree to that. And I'd say this kind of goes back to the narrative story telling approach that I think is happening in retail. People really want to feel an emotional connection to the products they're buying, and I believe rightfully so. 
I think that's kind of part of the reason why we're seeing retailers brick and mortar and online kind of take a new approach to how they sell products. Brick and mortar, maybe it's like an immersive experience. Showfields, for example, is a great example of a company that's maybe they have a brand in there that only does one or two SKUs, but there's this whole kind of design around that story. Yeah, I think a pop-up grocer as well, you know, great narrative-driven company that kind of pops up and they do all these amazing products in there that are design-centric, et cetera, and tell a story. So I am seeing companies kind of adapt from a retail perspective and brick and mortar to trying to tell the story to sell the products. You know, selling the products is obviously the end goal of the storytelling experience, but to kind of, you know, get the customers in you're inviting them to have this emotional connection. Mm -hmm. The emotional connection with the curation, absolutely. And what would you say, Chris, just taking a step back, the broader picture, D2C is such a popular topic in the retail space right now. I mean, we've been covering it even more so this year in 2021, and I assume we'll be doing that in the coming months as well. What's the biggest challenge you would say D2C faces and what's the biggest opportunity? Yeah, I'd say... D2C, it's becoming a thing where there's a low barrier to entry. So companies are popping up left and right. I think that the challenge is really going to be telling the story in a field of other companies telling similar stories and getting your product to stand out. And I think competition will really be the main challenge there. I'd say the biggest opportunity is there really is so much room to kind of connect with customers. And I find it exciting now that what we're seeing is D2C companies, digitally native D2C brands are kind of being courted into retail examples. Maybe you'll find them on shelves somewhere. Maybe you'll find them on another retailer's website. They're launching beyond their own website and trying to get their products to resonate with different types of customers and testing new channels. So I think what we're going to see is a lot of digitally native brands maybe trying out brick and mortar, maybe trying out a pop-up, maybe trying selling on another retailer's website and just testing to see what those channels look like as they maybe struggle to scale using Facebook ads, for example. Great. Well, Chris, it was a joy to have you on the show today. I learned a lot and I'd love to have you on again in the future. How can our listeners connect either with you directly or also learn about public goods? Yeah, I'm always available on email. So Chris at publicgoods.com and LinkedIn as well. Always available on there. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to the Rethink Retail podcast. If you would like to be considered as a guest on our show, apply at rethink.industries slash podcast guest. For sponsorship opportunities, send us an email at media at rethink.industries. You can help support our team at Rethink Retail by dropping us a rating and review on your iTunes podcast app. To each and every one of you, thanks so much for tuning in. Retail never sleeps. See you next week.